0: Exodus chapter 25, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair. Ram skins dyed red and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. Then let them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Let them take an arc of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold moulding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to its four feet with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They are not to be removed. Then put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law, which I will give you. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, and make two cherubim, out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upwards, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking towards the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put it put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law that I will give you there above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites make a table of acacia wood 2 cubits long a cubit wide and a cubit and a half high overlay it with pure gold and make a gold molding around it also Make around it a rim a handbreadth wide and put a gold moulding on the rim. Make four gold rings for the table and fasten them to the four corners, where the four legs are. The rings are to be close to the rim to hold the poles used in carrying the table. Make the poles of acacia wood. Overlay them with gold and carry the table with them. And make its plates and dishes of pure gold, as well as its pitchers and bowls for the pouring out of offerings. Put the bread of the presence on this table to be before me at all times. Make a lampstand of pure gold. Hammer out its base and shaft and make its flower-like cups, buds and blossoms of one piece with them. Six branches are to extend from the sides of the lampstand three on one side and three on the other. Three cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms are to be on one branch, three on the next branch, and the same for all six branches extending from the lampstand. And on the lampstand, there are to be four cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms. One bud shall be under the first pair of branches extending from the lampstand a second bud under the second pair, and a third bud under the third pair, six branches in all. The buds and branches shall all be of one piece with the lampstand, hammered out of pure gold. Then make its seven lamps and set them up on it so that they light the space in front of it. Its wick trimmers and trays are to be of pure gold, a talent of pure gold, is to be used for the lampstand and all these accessories. See that you make them according to the pattern shown you on the mountain.
1: I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I wonder how many of us this year have made um, some sort of New Year's resolution um, with the good intention of reading the Bible, the whole Bible, through this year. It's a very good thing to do. I'd recommend it. Um, There are lots of ways of doing it, but one way, which I wouldn't necessarily recommend might be to just start at Genesis chapter one and read from Genesis through to Revelation, finish Revelation 22 on December the 31st. Um, And if you were to do that, you can do the maths, you'd need to do about three or four chapters per day. Uh, And what you'd find is by January the 23rd, you'd hit Exodus chapter 25, not that long away. But I don't know about you, but when you do that, I wonder if you get to... Passages like Exodus 25 and the following, and you very quickly get discouraged with your quiet times. You to look at this, this uh, last half of Exodus. up to this point, it's all been action-packed, lots of exciting things happening. And then we've got the design for the tabernacle. And you think, well, what is there for me in the tabernacle? What can I learn from this passage? And you might get discouraged, and it becomes a bit of a slog and you might gradually fall out of the rhythm of having your daily quiet time, and you stop. And it might be at Exodus where we think, I always get stuck at Exodus, the second half. It might be that you have a New Year's resolution to come to the evening service. Either you don't come usually, or you come irregularly, and your resolution is to come more regularly. And this first evening service of the year... And we're starting in the tabernacle. And you think, oh, this is going to be hard work. You know, for the next 16 weeks or so, we're going to, well, look at all the bits of furniture. And you're thinking, well, after 16 weeks, I'll definitely know how big a cubit is. Um, But what else am I going to know? And you think, okay, this is going to be a hard resolution to do. But as I was studying Exodus 25, James gave me the option actually of whether I could do Exodus 25 or choose my own passage, um, and I chose to do Exodus 25. And as I was studying it, it was to start with one of those passages, you think, wow, this, this could be, take a lot of preparation, and it did. But as I was studying it, there is so much in this chapter to excite us about our God. And it's my prayer, and I'm sure it's the prayer of James and Matthew and other people who will be preaching in this series, that the sermons would be equally encouraging to you and equally challenging. Actually, one of the things that thrills your soul, or should thrill your soul, is to be able to trace a picture through Scripture. And I think the tabernacle is one of those ones that we can trace from here in Exodus all the way through to Revelation. And it should thrill our souls as we do it. So can I encourage you not only to uh, keep coming in the evening services, uh, but to not lose heart in your quiet times, especially if you're planning to read through the Bible in a year. When you get to the Exodus 25s and onwards, or other passages, don't lose heart. Keep studying it. And maybe make it your goal this year to study God's Word more deeply. So we are, we are in Exodus 25 uh, this week. Um, and we are looking at particularly three pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. So this is the start of the tabernacle, and we're looking at three pieces of furniture. We're looking at the Ark of the Covenant, the Table of Showbread, or the Table of uh, the Bread of the Presence, and the lampstand. Um, recently, I, was, I saw a clip from, I think it was Antiques Road Show or Antiques Road Trip, one of those. Uh, Kinds of shows, you know, when people bring their old bits of furniture or jewellery or something they have in their house which they think is really old and might be worth something, they bring it to this show and uh, they give it to an expert and they say, well, is this worth anything or is it just a bit of cheap old tat? Anyway, the clip I saw, um, this man had come on and he'd brought this table. Um, And to me, it just looked like an old table that was a little bit too dark for our house, Um, but it was nice enough, it was Okay. Um, it had been in this man's family for years and years and years, generations back. <clears throat> so he wanted to see whether it was worth anything. Anyway, as the expert started to look at this table and the intricacies in the design and all the little bits that I wouldn't spot, he didn't just see an old dark table, he saw this beautiful Georgian table. And as he started to explain all the intricacies of the design, he even excited me about it. And it turns out it was worth thousands and thousands of pounds. And as we look tonight at these three bits of furniture, to many, it would just look like a box, a table, and a candle holder. But they are so much more than that. And it's my prayer this evening that as we look at those um, different bits of furniture that they would excite us about the person of God and the Lord Jesus. So as I, as I started preparing this, as I started reading through Exodus 25, I had two main questions in my mind, and um, with God's help, we're going to answer those questions this evening. The two questions are, first, why is God so specific with the instructions for the tabernacle? Why is he so specific? The second question is, what is the purpose for each piece of furniture? Why do we need a table? Why do we need a lampstand, etc? And the answer to the first question hopefully will be answered in the first point of the sermon, the answer to the second question in the second point of the sermon, and then in the third point we'll bring those two answers together and see a glorious truth so um, first question: why is God so specific his, with his instructions for The tabernacle. And the answer is, he's so specific because God is holy. God is holy. Twice in the passage, God makes the point to Moses that everything must be exactly how he wants it. So verse 9, towards the start, he says, make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And then at the end of our passage, verse 40 He says, see that you make them according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Why does God stress this point? Why does it have to be exactly as God says? Well, the answer is that this earthly tabernacle was to be in the pattern of the heavenly one. This point is, this is the point that the writers of the Hebrews makes um, in Hebrews chapter 8 and chapter 9. Um, no need to turn to it, but if, in Hebrews 8 and 9, the writer of the Hebrews is saying, actually, <clears throat> this earthly tabernacle is a picture, picture of the heavenly one, the heavenly tabernacle where God dwells. That's why it's so specific, because it's a picture of something far greater. <clears throat> God is saying to the people of Israel through Moses that there is only one way that anyone can approach God. We cannot get to heaven on our own accord. There's only one way we can get there. There's only one way <coughs> that anyone can come and worship God. And that is God's chosen way. It cannot be modified. It is not the case that God says, well, I need a table for my tabernacle, make it how you please. No, he's specific. And the reason is, is because it's in the pattern of, of the heavenly tabernacle. There is no other way to meet with God. God is holy. We see that in how specific the instructions are. But we also see it in some of the details, uh, particularly in the details of the Ark of the Covenant. So let's have a look at a few. So firstly, uh, look at verses 12 to 15. And in those verses, we have some details about how the Ark of the Covenant is to be carried. So the people of Israel are still in the wilderness, they're still moving around, so the tabernacle has to move. And God gives some practical instruction as to how to carry the Ark of the Covenant, verses 12 to 15. What we have is we have this box and the Ark, and they put four rings on each corner at the feet, and then they put two poles through those Rings to allow the priests to carry it. Very practical advice, but it's much more than that. Notice specifically verse 15. It says, the poles are to remain in the rings of the ark. They are not to be removed. It's oddly specific, isn't it? Why should, not the, why should the poles not be removed from those rings? And if you compare it to the similar instructions for the table, in verses 26 to 29, very similar instructions, still four rings, still two poles to go through the rings, but there is a difference. For the table, there is no instruction to not remove the poles. Why? Well, the Ark of the Covenant is, is made holy by the Holy God. It is not to be touched by any in, for any means. It is... Unapproachable. God is so holy that he is unapproachable. And if you read um, 2 Samuel 6, uh, verses 6 and 7, what we have is the story of um, David. Um, the ark has been captured by the Philistines, and David is bringing the ark back to Israel. And what happens in verses 6 and 7, it says, Now when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon... Uzzah reached out and took hold of the Ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the Ark of God. That's how holy this God is. You cannot touch this Ark. Even if you think, You're saving the ark, as Uzzah presumably did. You cannot touch this ark. That's why the poles were not to be removed, to save anyone from touching the ark of the covenant. God is holy. Another thing that emphasizes God's holiness here is just the sheer splendor of the ark and the other furnishings. It's covered inside and out with gold. And same with the table. The lampstand is solid gold. And then there are these two cherubim at the ends of the cover of the ark, signifying that this is the throne of God. Again, in 2 Samuel 6, this time verse 2, it says, The name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. It is, this is God's throne or a picture of God's throne in the middle of the tabernacle. One more thing that emphasizes God's holiness from the making of the ark. What is to go inside the ark? Verse 16. Then put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law which I will give you. The Ten Commandments are to go in the ark. This covenant between the Lord and his people, this contract. And as we work through the Ten Commandments, either side of the summer, were we not reminded of how righteous and pure God is and how sinful and undeserving we are? And that is what is to go in the ark. And that is going to be the constant reminder of the priest who is to come before the ark The priest knows inside this Ark of the Ten Commandments, God is righteous and we are undeserving. Why so specific? Well, it's a reminder of the holiness of God. There is only one way to approach him. And at the moment, it seems he is completely unapproachable. So why was he so specific? Well, it's a pattern of heaven. And it means we cannot approach him as we are so we come to the second question and the second question was well what was the purpose of each piece of furniture what's the purpose and now we're going to look at more um, at each piece in more detail um, and what we have is we've got these three pieces we've got the ark of the covenant the table and the lampstand and the ark of the covenant gives the ultimate purpose for the tabernacle. It's the most important piece of furniture. And then the purposes for the other pieces of furniture flow out of the Ark of the Covenant. So what's the purpose of the Ark? Let's start at the Ark. This is verses 10 to 22. Verse 8 and verse 22 tell us. Verse 8, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. And then verse 22, There above the cover between the two cherubim, that are over the Ark of the Covenant law, I will meet with you and give you my commands for the Israelites. What's the purpose of the Ark? The purpose of the Ark and the whole tabernacle is that God draws near, that he will meet with his people. It's that God is imminent, is the word. He draws near. That's the purpose of, The Ark of the Covenant. And this is one of those storylines that can be traced throughout Scripture. So you go back to Genesis, and God dwelt with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And then that was lost. And here we have a slight undoing of the curse. So God comes to dwell with his people again to some extent. God dwells with his people through the tabernacle and then later the temple. Then Jesus came and John 1 made his dwelling among us. The Holy Spirit, as Joe reminded us in The Bite Size Truth this morning, dwells with all believers. In fact, dwells in all believers. And then in the culmination of everything, Revelation 21.3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. This is one of those storylines we can trace throughout Scripture, that God draws near and would dwell with his people. And that's the purpose of the ark. This is not just a box. This is a key part in a rich storyline throughout Scripture, that God would dwell with his people and meet with them that he would be imminent. How do we see this specifically in the ark? Well, really, the description of the ark is split into two. We've got verses 10 to 16, which could be described as saying that God is unapproachable, as we have seen from the last point. He's so holy. But then it turns in verses 17 to 22, because with verse 17 to 22, well, they describe a God who is who is to be approached, how can that be? Well, what is being described in verses 17 to 22 is the key to answering that question. And I think, actually, in the NIV, I think they've translated it a little bit unhelpfully here because we have this word cover seven times in the NIV uh, between verses 17 and 22. But only once, the very first time, does it have the word atonement with it. So verse 17, it talks, Calls it the atonement cover. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar at all, but I can spot when a word is used multiple times. And the word, the Hebrew word, is used all seven times, but it's been translated differently in our NIV. In the ESV, it says it uses the word mercy seat, and it uses that all seven times. So it says mercy seat, mercy seat, mercy seat, over and over. Or for us, atonement cover. Atonement cover, atonement cover, over and over again. This is not just a cover for a box. This is an atonement cover or a mercy seat. It is here at the mercy seat or at the atonement cover that once a year the high priest would go and sprinkle the blood of a bull and a goat as a sin offering for himself And for the people of Israel. He would atone for the people. On behalf of the people, he would stand before God and offer a sacrifice on their behalf. The outcome, Leviticus 16. Because on this day, atonement will be made for you, to cleanse you. Then, before the Lord, you you will be clean from all your sins. As James reminded us this morning, we are described as holy people. This atonement makes us holy. How is it that we can approach this unapproachable God? Because his throne is where he shows mercy. His throne is is where he makes us at one with him again. It is because God is a merciful God that we can approach him. There is nothing else we can call upon. We can only plead on his mercy as we come before him. The purpose of the Ark of the Covenant is so that God would draw near and so that we can draw near to God through a priest. God drawing near means blessing for his people. Again, as you trace the story of the Ark of the Covenant Covenant, through the Old Testament, from Exodus right through, you see time and time again that godly believers have concern about the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because they recognized that having God dwell among his people was the greatest blessing. So a couple of examples. Think of Eli in 1 Samuel chapter 4. At the end of his life... Um, the Philistines are in battle with the Israelites, and e- Eli is sat at the side of the road waiting to hear news. It says in verse 13 of 1 Samuel 4 that his heart feared for the ark, of the ark of God. I'm sure there was concern for people, I'm sure, but he was most concerned about the Ark. And then when the news came, it says, The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines, and the army has suffered heavy losses. Devastating news. Also, two, your two sons, Hophni and Phineas, are dead. Terrible personal loss for Eli. And the Ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken, and he died. What was it that affected Eli? It was the news about the ark. Because God dwelling with his people was the greatest blessing and Israel had just lost it. And then again, back in 2 Samuel 6, we see the blessing that comes from having God dwell with his people. Verses 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel 6. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of obed edom the Gittites for three months. And the Lord blessed him And his entire house. Now King David was told the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. God's presence brings great blessing. And this is where we come on to the other two bits of furniture in our chapter. Because both of them tell us of the blessings of having God dwell with us. So, let's look at each in turn. Let's firstly look at the table. And the first blessing we see in the table is that we can enjoy fellowship through feasting. We can enjoy fellowship with God through feasting. What is the purpose, then, of the table? Again, it's very ornate and very grand, along with its plates and its dishes and its pictures and other um, bits of utensils. All of this showing... That this tabernacle is the Lord's house. But the purpose of it comes out in verse 30. And it's very simple in many ways. Verse 30 says, Put the bread of the presence on this table to be before me at all times. The purpose of the table was to have this bread of the presence. The significance of the table comes from the bread. So, what's special about the bread? Well, for that, I think it's worth briefly looking at Leviticus 24, verses 5 to 9. So if you're in Exodus 25, just turn forwards 40 pages or so, and you'll be close to Leviticus 24. If you've hit numbers, you've gone too far. And uh, here, we have a more detailed description of the bread and its purpose. So Leviticus 24, verse 5, says, "'Take the finest flour and bake 12 loaves of bread.'" using two-tenths of an ephah for each loaf. Arrange them in two stacks, six in each stack on the table of pure gold before the Lord. By each stack, put some pure incense as a memorial portion to represent the bread and to be a food offering presented to the Lord. This bread is to be set out before the Lord regularly, Sabbath after Sabbath, on behalf of the Israelites as a lasting covenant. This bread is a food offering to the Lord, to remind the people that the Lord is the provider of all things and sustainer of life. But unlike other false gods of surrounding nations, God does not need to eat to sustain himself. So, what does he do with this bread? Verse 9 it belongs to Aaron and his sons, who are to eat it in the sanctuary area because it is a, a most holy part of their perpetual share of the food offerings presented to the Lord. What does God do with this bread? He gives it back to the people. He gives it back to the priests to eat the bread each week in the sanctuary, in God's presence. They are feasting, and the feast has been provided by God himself. And in Near Eastern culture, feasting together signified peace and fellowship. Each week, the priests were reminded that they can share unique fellowship with the Lord through feasting on this bread, sharing a meal together. So the first blessing of having God dwell with his people is that we can enjoy fellowship through feasting. We'll come back to it in a little while. The second blessing comes from the lampstand. And the second blessing we see is that we can have life through light, So, fellowship through feasting, life through light. Again, we have this description of an incredible seven-branched lampstand. And the details that God gives in the design and the intricacies, well, it must have been stunning to look at. You see them still in Jewish culture, menorah, but it must have been incredible. Solid gold, this seven-branched lampstand. But what's the purpose of it? And in some ways, it's very simple and obvious. Verse 37, so that they light the space in front of it. Makes sense, doesn't it? It's to provide light. But then you ask again, well, why all the detail? Why does it need to be so ornate? And if the tabernacle was still around today, if it was purely to provide light, would this lampstand just be replaced with an electric light bulb? Well, no. There is so much more to it than that. The design of this lampstand is to make it look floral or even tree like. And it's supposed to draw the Israelites' attention back to Eden and the tree of life. This is a link made in Revelation, too. And if you read Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, in the letter to the church at Ephesus we have this link. So in those uh, letters, typically, there's something to be repented of by a church, and then the Lord Jesus will say, if you do not repent, here's the punishment. If you do repent, here's the reward. And this is what is said to the church in Ephesus. If they were not to repent, the punishment for that church was that their lampstand would be removed. But... To the one who is victorious, this is verse 7 of Revelation 2, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. The priests, as they served, were reminded through this lampstand that light brings life. And actually, again, both of those pictures, both light and feasting, are two themes that you could trace through Scripture from Genesis 1 and 2, all the way through to Revelation 22. And again, they are themes present in the tabernacle. Each of these three pieces of furniture, furniture we have looked at all teach us something wonderful about the truth of God dwelling with his people. But there's a slight problem, isn't there? Only the priests are allowed to enjoy the blessings of the table and the lampstand. And only the high priest can enjoy the blessings of the Ark of the Covenant. Which brings us to our third point. We have seen that God is holy. We have seen that God is imminent or draws near. And now we come on to Jesus, Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel, God draws near. You now, just this last month in December, we particularly remember the name Emmanuel, don't we? That God draws near, God with us. And now in Exodus 25, of all places, we see how Christ fulfills all of these blessings pictured in the tabernacle. He fulfills them to the full himself. So let's have a look at each one. First, the mercy seat, the atonement cover. Jesus is our great high priest who offered himself once for all. In fact, he is the high priest, the sin offering and the scapegoat. He shed his blood and we are washed clean through his blood so that we can stand before God. He took the full force of God's wrath so that we can go free, so that we can be made at one with God. And just like the high priest made a sacrifice in order to enter the earthly tabernacle to represent the people of God, Jesus, again, this is picked up in Hebrews, Jesus has offered a better sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice, and entered the true tabernacle to represent his people before God. Jesus fulfills the Ark of the Covenant. Next, the bread of the presence. Just as the priests could know fellowship with God through a feast, so can we. What was it that Jesus said in John 6? I am the bread of life. And then later in that chapter, verses 53 to 56, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. We enjoy uh, fellowship through feasting, On Christ. What does that mean? Well, trusting in Him alone for salvation, and daily coming to Him and relying on Him for all our needs, particularly in regards to salvation. Jesus fulfills the bread of the presence. And then the lampstand. Again, John 8, verse 12. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have, get this, the light of life. He fulfills it all. Every last detail points to Jesus. And if that doesn't excite you, then I don't know what will. It's a, through Jesus, the holy God has drawn near And can be known. It all points to him. As I close, let me make a few points of application. Firstly, and it comes straight from our last point. Are you one of God's people? Who God promises to dwell with? We have seen... Some of, not all of them, but some of the blessings of being one of God's people tonight. We can have fellowship with God. We can have life eternal. And many of those blessings and many of the other blessings will come fully when we see him face to face. But as we stand on our own, God is unapproachable for us. We cannot... Approach him on our own merit. But Christ makes it possible. Because he is the one. Who fulfilled the law perfectly. And yet died. Taking the punishment we deserve. Have you. Trusted in him. Are you one of God's people. Do you know the blessing of being one of God's people. And having him dwell with you. Secondly. I haven't really touched on verses one to seven at all at this point, but verses one to seven are a call to give, a call to give specifically to the work of the tabernacle. Now before Christmas, Andy Price preached from 1 Corinthians 16 about giving, and I'd like to, can I direct you to that sermon? It's on the website It'd be good to listen to that one again. But a couple of things to point out here. This is a call to give to a specific cause. So, for the tabernacle. And that cause is so that people could draw near to God, or that God could draw near to people. Give to those causes. Through the preaching of God's word, people can draw near to God. Give to causes that preach God's word. And secondly, it's a willing giving. So verse 2, receive an offering uh, for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. Give as your heart prompts. There was no everyone give a tenth for this one. It was give as your heart prompts you. Be willing to give. The thought of giving will probably come up again when we get to Exodus 35, but we'll leave it there, but one of the applications as we look at the wonder of our God is that we should give to the work of the proclamation of the gospel. And thirdly, and this is very general, keep studying scripture. I've been thrilled this week as I've looked deeply at this passage, and I'm sure I've missed bits, and I've definitely left bits out. I had to for the sake of time. When at first this passage appeared difficult, and hard to apply. It's been a thrill to look into it. Look to trace themes through the Bible. I've given you a couple you could do tonight. You could look at light and feasting. And if you don't know where to start, there are plenty of godly men and women in this church who will have done it time and time again. Speak to them. Ask them to do it with you. It's a wonderfully encouraging exercise to take a theme in God's word and trace it from Genesis to Revelation, it thrills your soul. But let's end reminding ourselves again of our Saviour, whose blood atoned for us so that we can enjoy fellowship with God and know life eternal. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for what we learned from you, uh, about you in this passage, that you are a holy God. That you are so righteous and pure that because of our sin we cannot stand before you. But Father, we thank you that there is a way to come into your presence through the perfect blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for him. We thank you for his perfect life and his substitutionary death for us. Father, we, we love him and we pray that you we would love him more uh, as we study your word. Father, we pray for anyone here who's not yet trusted in the Lord Jesus for themselves. We pray that tonight might be the night when they put their trust in you as their saviour and as their sin offering. Father, we, we pray that each one of us would go from this place tonight rejoicing in the Lord Jesus and all that he has done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.